You're listening to an episode of The Rewind, a podcast series by the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This episode features audio from our event on December 2nd, 2022, with Luis Avila, an attorney at Varnum Law and chair of Varnum's DEI committee. This event features Luis's keynote on the ethics of DEI in the workplace. This wheelhouse talk was presented in partnership with the Frederick Meyer Honors College for their Fall Frederick Meyer Lecture Series. If you'd like to learn more about this event or our speaker, please visit gvsu.edu slash hc slash Luis Avila, which is linked in the description below. Now, let's rewind. excited to introduce our speaker for this evening. Uh, Luis Avila is a partner at Varnum Law, where he has practiced since 2011. He focuses his practice on labor and employment issues with a wide range of experience in traditional labor matters and employer counsel in both the public and private sectors. Luis has represented public and private employers in both state and federal court under the various statutes that govern the employment relationship. Um, I won't name all of the acts, but there are a lot of them. And then along with his professional accolades, Luis serves on a number of boards in the Grand Rapids community and has been recognized as an outstanding community leader by the Grand Rapids Chamber of Commerce, the Grand Rapids Business Journal, and Wedgwood Christian Services, among others. Please join me in welcoming Luis. Well, it is a, um, a pleasure to be here talking with you this evening. Um, only a few years ago, I was a uh, professor here for a couple of semesters, an adjunct professor. I was invited to come and talk about the basics of law, and I genuinely enjoyed my time here. The students, uh, you guys are really smart, ask very tough questions, you're very engaging, um, and so it's honestly a, a joy to be back here talking with you guys. And so today we're going to talk about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in full disclosure, I'm not a uh, diversity, equity, or inclusion professional. I didn't study it academically. I didn't go to undergrad for this. I don't have any fancy certifications in it. Um, but it is something that I deal with on an almost daily basis, not just as part of my practice as a labor and employment attorney, uh, counseling clients, whether that's companies, organizations, sometimes individuals, um, on sort of their efforts in this space because that necessarily impacts operations, um, but also through uh, my role as the chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee at Varnum, the firm where I'm at, um, we have this committee that's comprised of volunteer attorneys and staff, and we're really charged with sort of leading the efforts on our DEI within our firm. And so, you know, this is something that I'm dealing with on a daily basis, uh, sort of helping our efforts in this space. And then also through some of the organizations that I'm in, um, as Abby mentioned, uh, I'm a volunteer in a bunch of different organizations here in town. I serve on a bunch of board of, uh, of directors. And, you know, we do some really good stuff in the DEI space. So everything that I'm going to talk to you about today is really something that I've encountered anecdotally, something that I encounter sort of in my professional experience, but uh, always open to feedback, always open to conversation and dialogue, because I think we can all agree that we're sort of all learning in this space. Um, if anyone tells you that they've got all the answers, they're, they're probably wrong. Um, because this is, as, as is the case with a lot of industries, this is something that's really sort of evolving and our understanding, our appreciation of it changes almost on a daily basis. 
So let me talk to you a little bit about sort of my story and why DEI is something that really I'm, I'm very passionate about. Um, I am not from West Michigan. I, I was actually born in Mexico City and lived there until I was about six. At six, my family moved to a suburb in Philadelphia so that my dad could study his first PhD. He's got two. Um, and so we moved to, to this suburb and I didn't speak any English. I've never been to the US. And we moved there, and it was a pretty big culture shock, even at six, right? Because I didn't speak the language that everybody spoke. I barely understood, you know, words here and there. Um, nobody looked like me. There was this one other kid that was uh, my age in my class that was Egyptian. And the only thing that we shared was we were both dark-skinned and had black hair. But I can't tell you how often we were confused, right? And a lot of these kids, I mean, these are six, seven-year-old kids, uh, didn't know the difference between his language and my language, between Egypt or Mexico, right? And so we were sort of constantly being confused. Um, but I, I learned very quickly that I needed to sort of assimilate into that culture because it was, it was a very homogenous culture. And I had to assimilate, learn the language quickly, learn the culture, right? Like the TV shows, like the music, like the sports, in order to fit in, right? And so I did that for four years. And when I turned around 10, we moved back to Mexico City. My dad was done with his studies. Um, and that was another really big culture change for me. But you would think I'm moving back to Mexico, my, my hometown, my country, my culture, my language. You would think it'd be an easy transition, uh, but it was far from that. In fact, it was really difficult because at that point, English had kind of become my, my first language, right? I, I had sort of started leaving Spanish behind because I didn't want to learn Spanish anymore, right? I wanted to learn the dominant language. Um, I was into, you know, American sports and American TV and music. And so it was a pretty big change going back to elementary school in Mexico City. And I, I suffered a lot of bullying. I suffered a lot of discrimination right, from, from people that were in my class, even from teachers. They, they didn't like the fact that I stood out in certain areas, right? My English was really good. It was sometimes better than some of my teachers, but that, I couldn't help it, right? That, that's just who I was. We, we lived in Mexico until about, uh, when I turned around 17, halfway through my junior year of high school, and then we ended up moving to Miami. My, my dad got a, a job there, and so my family moved to Miami. And at that point, I had spent the last seven years really assimilating Mexican culture. Right, I had done sort of a 180 and now I was all about soccer and I was all about Mexican music. And while I still very much sort of practiced my English, I had made a concerted effort to be very Mexican, right? And at that point I thought, you know what, I've got this, right? I'm gonna go to Miami. Miami, if you haven't been there, is a really cosmopolitan city. Spanish is almost the predominant language over there. There's a very big Hispanic community. So I thought, oh yeah, this transition is gonna be you know, much better than it has been in the past. And I was really wrong. Uh, when we moved over there, it turns out that the predominant Hispanic community is Cuban. It's not Mexican and it's not any other country, it's Cuban, right? And at that time in 1999, um, I suffered a fair amount of discrimination as well from the Cuban community. Because in Miami, Mexicans were viewed as the farm workers, the ones that pick the blueberries, the ones that pick the, uh, the oranges. They're not the office workers, they're not the executives, right? And so everyone sort of viewed me, viewed my family as, well, you know what, you guys are the farm workers. And so then I thought, okay, well, you know what, I gotta sort of assimilate again, and I gotta get into this culture. And so you fast forward about three and a half years, 
And I was very much a sort of Miami teenager, right? I dressed like a gangster. I had my chain here. Um, and, you know, I loved hip hop and rap, right? I'd sort of assimilated what it meant to be a teenager in Miami. Um, around that time, my dad then ended up getting a job as a professor at Calvin Seminary here in Grand Rapids. And so sight unseen, we came to Grand Rapids. My dad had already come here, which was a connection. He had studied one of his masters here. So they invited him to come for a professorship. And we moved here um, within the span of two weeks. We came up here, looked at it. I signed up for college and moved to Grand Rapids, right? And I thought at this point, all right, well, I've been in the US for three and a half years at this point. I've got this, right? College is going to be easy. In fact, I'm really excited about it. Uh, yeah, like even today, can you imagine coming from Miami, acting a little bit like a gangster, and coming to Calvin College, <laughs> right? I mean, very, you know, I mean, sorry, Calvin, I, I'm an alum. I, I love uh, the university, but, you know, fairly homogenous culture. You know, right, very small, private, Christian, fairly conservative school. Um, another massive culture shock, right? And so I quickly had to learn that I had to leave it all, a lot of the Miami behaviors behind in order to fit in. And, you know, Calvin was a good school. I loved it, but I, I faced a lot of challenges there as well. There was not a whole lot of diversity in the student population, and even some of my best friends have made some of the most hurtful comments to me. You know, people that to this day I still consider friends have really hurt me with the things that they've said, with the way that they've acted. Oftentimes, they don't even realize that they did it, right? They weren't trying to hurt you, but they realize, you know, they, they make comments, they have engaged in certain behaviors um, that are really not terribly inclusive, right? And so, graduated from Calvin, uh, spent a couple years here working at uh, JP Morgan Chase as a banker decided I didn't like it, and so ended up going to law school uh, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I decided I was going to go to law school to change the world, and so I really focused my studies there on international human rights. I wanted to be an international human rights lawyer. And so graduating from, uh, from Michigan, I went straight to work for the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights in Geneva, Switzerland, and spent some time there in 2010. And so my wife and I moved over there. We actually already had our first son. Um, and in many ways, I felt like, the, like everything that I had gone through had prepared me for that moment. Because you get to the United Nations, and it was literally everyone is from a different part of the world, right? Everyone speaks different languages. Everybody comes from different cultures. Even Geneva itself, you don't find people from Geneva. You find people from all over, but there's like no Genevans. I don't think they exist, right? But it really allowed me to sort of embrace the, the fact that I didn't fit in, the fact that nobody fit in. Um, and, and really excel in my time there. And, and largely, I think it was just because I, I was already sort of dealing or was used to dealing with the culture shock that comes with moving around, with being in new situations, where a lot of my peers, they were really struggling with it because they had maybe never left their countries, right? And so this was sort of the first time that they were in somewhere that was like the United Nations. We moved back here in 2011, largely for family reasons, so that our, our kids could be around family. My wife is from here, my family's now here. Um, and I've been at Varnum ever since, and um, I'm incredibly happy. Even though I'm not an international human rights lawyer, I realized very quickly I didn't really like that, and we can talk about that some other time about why, but um, I feel like I'm doing a lot of really good work here, and the diversity, equity, and inclusion component is a big reason why. So let's talk, all right, a little bit into the meat of this. So, so what's diversity? 
And you know, there are many, there are many definitions of diversity, but for our purposes, we're gonna talk about it in the context of an organization, whether that's a school setting, whether that's a workplace, right, your church, whatever it is. So diversity is a collective mixture of differences among individuals, right, all of us, students, professors, coworkers, and their individual characteristics, their values, their beliefs, their experiences, their backgrounds, right? It's everything, it's who you are, that is diversity, right? It's more than just the physical characteristics. I think we've gotten really accustomed to talking about diverse individuals, right? We talk about diverse students, diverse candidates, right? Diverse coworkers, and that's really code for my black coworker, right? My female classmate, right? My transgender student, right? That's really what we're using it for. And it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, but at the same time I use it all the time because like we don't have better terminology, but that's not really what we should be talking about when we talk about diversity, right? It's more than just our physical characteristics. It includes the obvious. It includes also the hidden characteristics, right? So let's do a quick mental exercise here. I want you guys to think of the phrase, I am blank, right? And then you fill in that blank with some common identifier of yours, such as your race, your religion, your gender, right? I am blank. And then after that, we're gonna do, but I am not blank, okay? And then in there, you're gonna fill that blank with a common stereotype about that group that you just identified that's not true of you, whether that's positive or negative, right? So I am blank, but I am not blank. Just think about that for a second. An example for me would be, I am Mexican, but I'm not a farm worker. I'm a man, but I'm terrible at mechanics, right? Someone the other day told me I am Asian, but I'm not good at math, right? We have, like, you belong to this group, this characteristic of yours, but I, I guarantee you all of us can think of something that's different from that stereotype that we all fit, right? We all have that. That's diversity, right? The fact that the majority of the people in this room are white doesn't necessarily mean that this is not a diverse group. I think this is an incredibly diverse group, right? I learned that just, just teaching here. My students all kind of looked the same, but they were vastly different, right? They had very different approaches to life. And so when we talk about diversity, this is, that's really what we're talking about, right? We have this personal diversity that follows all of us. But then we also have our workplace, our classroom diversity, right? The organization that you belong in, that has its own unique culture. Grand Valley has its own unique culture that's very different than Calvin, I can guarantee you that. Social cultural diversity, right? West Michigan, very different than Miami, very different than Mexico City, very different than Geneva. And then here we are as individuals operating in this constant mix of these three circles, but being told that you really are only that first circle, right? and that you should act according to that one circle, and that you're expected to act according to whatever those other two circles in the bottom are. But the reality is these three overlap all the time, right? So that's what we're talking about when we talk about diversity. But diversity without inclusion doesn't matter. And in fact, Roger and I were talking right before this presentation about how for years, diversity was a focus. No one mentioned inclusion, no one mentioned equity. We've sort of gotten smart to the fact that, oh, you know what, yeah, diversity is good, but we also need inclusion, right? Without that, diversity doesn't really do much for you, and in fact, can create a fair amount of conflict. So in an organization, right, our definition here for inclusion, the achievement of an environment in which all individuals are treated fairly, with respect, 
and have equal access to opportunities and resources and can contribute fully to the common success, right? An inclusive culture is one where everyone feels respected, when everyone feels welcome. So what can prevent us from achieving an inclusive environment? Our biases, right? Our biases can really sort of get in the way. Um, I'd like to think that most of us check our conscious biases and are actively trying to change them. I'd like to think that's the case for everyone in this room. But we also have unconscious biases, right? And I was just listening to a presentation a few weeks ago on DEI, and uh, this is a PhD that said, you know what, everyone focuses on conscious biases, but they're unconscious. Why do you even focus on these? Right? You, you, by definition, you're not even aware that they're there, so stop thinking about those. I'm like, All right, I respectfully disagree with him. Um, I think we can actively try to tackle our unconscious biases because they come up all the time, right? And so what do we mean when we say unconscious biases? Social stereotypes about certain groups of people from outside that form that we form outside of our own consciousness, right? And so these will unknowingly drive you to treat people better than others, worse than others, right? My, uh, my wife was telling me the other day how she was walking out of Meyer and she was going to her car and she saw two dark-skinned men. She said it was dark. She couldn't see really, but they were dark. And she quickly sped up and like, got into her car, right? And then she said, you know, on the drive home, I was thinking, would I have acted the same if they had been like white guys? And, and it really sort of like ate away at her that night. I told her, look, as your husband, just get into the car. I don't care what skin color they are. If you feel unsafe, go, right? But it really sort of ate away at her, and she thought, you know, is this an unconscious bias? And I was like, well, you did marry a Mexican, right? So I don't, I don't know. She's, she's white. She's from West Michigan. Um, but that's what we talk about when we talk about our unconscious biases, right? And so we really do have to try to check these biases. We got to sort of practice, because it does take practice, self-awareness, right? Learning to recognize our own biases. And so one method that I often like to, to use is to mentally flip whatever it is that we're dealing with, whomever it is that we're dealing with, to his or her opposite. And see if it feels or sounds weird. And if it does, chances are we probably got a bias in there that we want to check. And so what, what am I talking about? What's an example of that? Right, the Cleveland Indians, Major League Baseball team, right? very popular, movies made out after them. But it's like their mascot is a very red Native American in traditional Indian attire with a feather there. And I got to tell you guys, like even to this day, I see this and it doesn't like make my gut wrench, right? I've sort of been indoctrinated from when I was very little that this is okay. And so I look at this, right? And a lot of us would have the knee-jerk reaction of saying, well, but there's nothing wrong with it, right? This is just a mascot. We don't mean anything by it. Well, we know now that Native Americans across the country feel deeply hurt and offended by something like this. Like, wouldn't we, like, if that's how you're being depicted? And so in terms of the exercise, I said, well, why don't you mentally flip it? Well, let's flip it. <laughs> what if they weren't the Cleveland Indians with red faces and the feather? What if they were the Cleveland Caucasians and it was like some white dude with a money sign, right? Big white teeth, right? The stereotype of a white person. We see this and I gotta tell you, I, I'm just like, oh, that doesn't sound right. Like that looks really weird, right? 
And I guarantee you, if you know, there was a proposal in Grand Rapids to start the Grand Rapids Caucasians baseball team, everyone be, would be laughed out of town, right? But why doesn't that offend us? You know, maybe it does. Um, but chances are, if you're like me, we've grown up with this, and it, like, it doesn't quite bother us the same way, right? But it should. And by the way, this is, um, I don't know if you guys remember, this was in 20, 2016, Bomani Jones, an ESPN sports analyst, uh, talking about Major League Baseball, nothing to do with DEI, went on air with a t-shirt that had this on, and it just created this massive national dialogue about, should we be rethinking these, right? ESPN did its best to like hide it with graphics, right? They like zoomed up and they like had their ESPN ticker across the shirt so nobody would see that, right? No controversy. Um, but we should be talking about this, right? Washington, the Redskins switched over to the Commanders recently. Good for them. Um, I don't like the name Washington Commanders, but it's definitely better than the Redskins, right? And so that's inclusion, but what about now equity, right? What do we mean about equity? So in an organization, equity means treating everyone fairly, accepting that biases and obstacles exist. Step one, we have biases, we have obstacles. Accept it, they're there. And they don't exist for everybody, right? So we gotta work to correct them and remove these biases. And so achieving that in an organization, or even as individuals, it means actively correcting for this. And the key word there is actively. Right? This is not something that you do once and you're good to go. You've gotta constantly stay at this to try to achieve an inclusive environment. Because without that, you're gonna have diversity, right? You might have a little bit of inclusion, but if you don't have equity, if you don't recognize that people come to your classroom, to your workplace, from all different stages of life, from all different walks of life, with different challenges, with different levels of privilege, we're not gonna make much, uh, uh, much headway here. So let's do another little example of what we mean when we're talking about equity, because equity doesn't mean equality, right? We've all sort of been taught to think that just treat everyone equally and we're good, right? I'd like to think that we're all sort of getting to the place where we're realizing that that's not quite what we're talking about, right? And that, by the way, is sort of the foundation of the American dream, right? Treat everyone the same, give everyone the same opportunities, and you will succeed. And if you don't, it's on you. You didn't work hard enough, you're lazy, you didn't want it that bad. But I don't think it's really talking about treating everyone equally. So here's an example. One of you guys have seen this graphic before. Right, three kids are trying to watch a baseball game. The kid on the left, very clearly Dutch. And the one on the <laughs> right, very clearly Mexican, or short. Um, and if we're talking about equality, right, there's a fence that prevents them from watching the baseball game. If you treat them equally, you give them the same resources to succeed, right? And so we invest in getting them these three crates so that they can look over the fence and watch the game. But that, that doesn't quite get us there, right? We're treating them equally, we're giving them the same resources, but the guy on the right, hey, if you don't wanna watch the baseball game, that's on you, right? You, you didn't try hard enough. And by the way, purists will tell you, because I've, I've, I've been confronted about this numerous times, well, you do have to treat people equally. You can't go around giving preferential treatment, right? Because if I give you preferential treatment, I give you preferential treatment, where does it stop, right? Okay, that's, that's one argument. I don't think that's necessarily the correct argument. 
So when we talk about equality versus equity, a fair distribution, right? What about this? Well, the short guy really needs the two boxes. He needs the two crates. He doesn't need one because he can't do anything with one crate. The guy in the middle doesn't need two, but he definitely needs more than none. And the guy on the left needs nothing, right? And so I think a lot of us would look at this and say, oh yeah, okay, well that's, that's equality. No, okay, that's, that's being equitable, right? We're giving resources the way that they should. Um, the problem though is that I think the guy on the left and maybe even the guy in the middle are gonna start resenting the guy on the right. Why is he getting two boxes? Why is he getting two crates? I'm just as human as they are. How come you're not giving me anything? That's not fair, right? But I do think this starts to get us closer to what we want to achieve if we're talking about being equitable, right? But I still think that there is an issue with this. And by the way, for years, I think this has been fairly accepted as, yeah, no, this is what we mean when we talk about having, um, being equitable, right? Now, what about this? I think that really gets us there. Because if all you're doing is giving these three folks different levels of resources, I think you're gonna create friction, I think you're gonna create problems, you're gonna create resentment. And I think it's frankly too, too easy to just tackle the problem like this, right? Because you don't wanna really tackle the, the real issue. The real issue isn't that the guy on the right is really short and the guy on the left is really tall. The real issue is the fence. That's the obstacle, right? By the way, I'm not advocating for like free baseball games for everyone. It's just, just a, an example, a caricature. But you know, this is, this is really what we're talking about. Identify, actively identify the issue, the bias, remove it, right? And so for years, we had already identified that this was okay. This is no longer good. Treating people equally isn't enough. So let's actively check for that. Okay, well, we checked for that. Now we give them this. And then for years, we thought this was great. Well, no, we should probably actively check for that, right? And who knows, you know, maybe in a few years we'll have this again and there won't be a fence and I, I don't know, right? We don't know how this will go. We're always learning. But I think this does start to get us closer to what we mean between equality and equity. And so what are we really trying to create when we talk about the three? We're really trying to create a sense of belonging. That's what we're really trying to achieve here because it isn't about diversity. It isn't about equity. It isn't about inclusion. In fact, if you're like me, you probably get tired of hearing about it sometimes, right? What we're really trying to create is that sense of belonging where the three overlap, right? And that really, that sense of belonging allows all of us to really thrive, to bring our full selves to the table. So why, you know, what are, what are some of the, the practical ramifications of this? Why does this really matter to us? You know, failure to really appreciate this, to have all three overlap, breeds narrow-mindedness. Inevitably, it breeds narrow-mindedness. Strains relationships, it creates discord, and it drives away your top talent, right? If you're in a school where you're not feeling like you belong, that's not inclusive, you're probably going to find another school. And employers today are dealing with this all the time, right? So I, my job is every day dealing with organizations across the country. And I can tell you, this is a real issue, right? Where they're having to step up their game to be inclusive, 
right, to create that sense of belonging because their top talent says, you know what, I not only don't want to work for you, I want to go to a different city, I want to go to a different state, I want to change industries altogether, I want to find a place where I belong. Because I think, you know, what we're starting to see now is, especially the younger generations, less driven by money and financial rewards, more driven by what's my quality of life here? Right? I'm okay taking a smaller paycheck if it means I don't work on weekends and nights. I'm good with that. Right? We're starting to see a lot more of that, where for years it was just pay as much money as they can, they'll work as much as they can, and everything will be fine. There's also some very practical uh, damaging ramifications to that lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I don't know if you guys remember this from 2018 couple years before the pandemic, which now feels like a lifetime ago, but H&M released this whole new product line. It was a whole marketing campaign. And one of the lead products was this, which you know, in and of itself, that green sweater, nothing wrong with it, but it was right next to that image. And you would think a large company like H&M would have caught this at some point, right? And so interviews after that, because you know, this became national news, H&M came out with a public statement saying, well, we're so sorry, we didn't mean anything by it. I, I believe, I don't think anyone was intentionally trying to harm anyone. But interviews afterwards with some of the employees that were involved in the process will tell you, there was, a, 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 first of all, a lack of diversity in our teams. So nobody caught this. And it goes through several layers. Like, and to the extent that there was diversity, no one felt like they could speak up because the executives had already given it the green light and they loved this and all oh, this kid is really cute, so let's put him on there, right? And so even if they, to the extent that they did have diversity, they, they really didn't feel included. They didn't really feel like they belonged. They couldn't speak up. And so this passed through several layers of approval and it cost H&M millions of dollars, right? In my practice, I, I see the, the downside, the negative side to a lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion and how it affects organizations. And so the Center for American Progress uh, recently found that workplace discrimination against employees based on race, gender, sexual orientation, costs companies, organizations, nationally an estimated $64 billion spent on, that's time spent on investigations, on attorneys, on lawsuits, on everything other than the mission of the organization, right? And I can tell you, because th this is what I do, I represent organizations in these sort of matters, a lot of times it's employees that feel like they just are being treated unfairly. And oftentimes, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what the actual, you know, what it is that the organization is doing, it's how you're help making your employees feel, right? Messaging matters. Right? How, how you conduct yourself matters. You might have the best practices, but if you're not communicating them correctly, you're not really gonna create that sense of belonging. And so, why is this important, right? Equity theory, I don't know if you guys know equity theory from 1963, John Adams, explained that when individuals perceive, perceive, that their outputs, whether that's your grades here at school, whether that's your pay, promotions, if you perceive that they're fairly distributed, equitably distributed, not equally distributed, equitably distributed, 
you'll be motivated to increase your input. You're going to work harder. You're going to want to work harder because you believe that you're being treated fairly, right? And the opposite is true. If you perceive that you're not being treated fairly, you're not being treated equitably, your, your desire to be creative, your desire to work hard is going to plummet, right? And so just very briefly, you know, in terms of what I think is a, is a takeaway, it is of paramount importance for all of us, every single one of you sitting in this room, whether you're a student, whether you're a professor, whether you're an executive or an hourly employee, you all help bring this, right? Remember the three circles at the beginning about diversity. You're bringing your own diversity. You're bringing your own sense of inclusion. We all set the tone and tenor of the, the different circles that we operate in. Don't take that lightly. You guys have a fair amount of influence, every single one of you. And if you just sort of decide that, ah, that's up for my professor to do, that's up to the university, that's up to the, my employer to do, you know, that, that change isn't going to happen. We really need to do it, every single one of us. And I, and I can't impress that enough. So um, if you do it, I'll do it, and we'll, we'll work hard at it. Thank you. So I think we have uh, questions, time for questions, right? Abby is nodding yes. Hello, and um, thank you for your presentation. So um, you did mention how your, your diverse experience helped you. Uh, with, so you did mention that your experience helped you with um, dealing with um, issues of diversity and inclusion equity. And, um, but the issue is that not everybody has your diverse experience. So not everybody is actually equipped with those skills and that, that experience to actually deal with these kind of issues. So my question is, what would uh, you be? What would be your advice for people that are not um, that do not have these experiences um, to actually be able to deal with these matter to deal with these matters of diversity and inclusion equity? Yeah, that that's a great question, right? And and by the way. Um, the fact that I moved around a lot and went to different countries makes me in no way sort of equipped for this other than I just had to deal with a lot of stuff a lot, like fairly regularly. And so to, to answer your question about, you know, if, if you don't have a terribly diverse background, um, how do you sort of deal with this, right? Um, I, I heard someone answer, it that, answer that question a few years ago with, in a way that I loved and really took it to heart, and that's listen more than you talk, right? Regardless of the setting, listen to those around you, right? We're, we're very quick to dismiss other people's opinions, their points of view, their input, because we sort of tend to think, oh, you know what, I've got all the answers, or, you know, they don't really know what they're talking about because they don't have this experience that I had. I don't know, you know what, take a moment, listen to them. And if you listen more than you talk, I think you sort of realize that, man, I really don't have all the answers. And oftentimes my point of view could really use some like work, right? It takes a little bit of humility to do that. Um, but I, that's how I would say, you know, if you don't really have that sort of life experience to draw on, help other people educate you on those experiences. Yeah, so the question was about the slide of the fence, right? Um, 
where, where do we see those in our community today? I think um, the biggest issue that we have is that we tend to think of achieving equity, achieving inclusion on an individual level, right? Let's solve for this problem. Let's accommodate this individual. I think the problem that we have in, in West Michigan, probably naturally, is more of a systems problem. So instead of looking at how can I create equity with my employees and helping them figure it out, what about an organization? What is my organization doing to change this? Let's look at our policies. Let's talk to our employees and figure out how they feel, right? how they perceive that we're treating them. We, we actually just underwent a uh, like seven, eight month long study at Varnum led by our DEI committee. We brought in a consultant to do just that, right? Where we said, okay, for years we've been giving out boxes of different amounts and different sizes to people to get them there. But that's clearly not working. So, so what is our fence? Well, listen, right? First we had to go and listen. So we brought in a consultant, conducted a, a survey of all of our folks, completely anonymous, so they could provide us feedback, looked at our policies, and found some really inequitable policies that, you know, no one was trying to hurt anyone. They were drafted in the best spirit, but we realized, yeah, you know what? These haven't been updated in like 15 years, and they're really out of date, right? We need to change these. And that's not easy, by the way, because some of these policies have serious implications, and it requires a fair amount of buy-in, but you know, our DEI committee pushed, our leadership was okay with it, and you know, we're, we're sort of starting to make those changes. So I think for us, it's more of a systems change than an individual change. Yeah, and that's always the tough part, right? Trying to have these dialogues with people where there's an inequity of power, right? And we all have this in, in, in our life, right? You're, you're gonna have sort of a, a difference in power and it's really, really difficult to sort of push upstream, much easier to create change downstream, right? Um, I, I have this happen to me all the time, right? Uh, I'm, I'm thankfully now in a position of leadership in most organizations that I'm involved in and so I can push, but I inevitably get pushed back. Right? Why did we do this? Why are we treating everyone the same? Why do we speak out about killings of black people but not killings of white people? That's, that's not being equal, right? And so you have to have these conversations and unfortunately the answer is you're gonna have to have tough conversations. This stuff isn't gonna happen because everyone is just like open about it. Now we'd have already achieved all these changes years ago. And so what I would tell you is don't be afraid of the tough conversations and that takes a lot of courage. Um, and, and takes a lot of willpower to have these conversations, but if you perceive that things are not being equitable, that's whatever organization, workplace, classroom is not being inclusive, speak up, right? And if that level doesn't hear you, speak up at the level above that. There's always a level above that level, right? And I can tell you just firsthand experience representing tons of employers in West Michigan the vast majority want to do right, right? We tend to think of executives and company owners as all they care about is themselves and money and profit. 
Some of them do, without a doubt. Most don't. Most want to do right by their employees. Most want to have organizations that affect real change, real positive change. But oftentimes, you know, one of my favorite sayings is, I don't know what I don't know, right? And so if you don't speak up and you tell me that you think this practice is not inclusive, I might think it's the best practice in the world, right? I might think that taking all of my employees Thursdays at four to happy hour is great because I'm being inclusive. All of my employees are invited. Let's go to happy hour at four o'clock on me, right? I'm giving you a chance to talk to me. Well, that doesn't really work for working parents that have kids that they gotta pick up at school. And so you might be excluding all the, the moms that gotta like, leave work to go pick up their kids or the dads that gotta leave work to pick up their kids. And in trying to create a very inclusive policy, you're actually being very exclusive, right? So speak up and, and have the difficult conversation. And I think more often than not, you'll find receptive ears. Uh, maybe not at, at this level, but maybe at this level, right? My dad's entire side of the family is Iraqi, despite the way that you can't tell. <laughs> um, I get introduced. But uh, growing up, I I was pretty um, submerged like in the culture and everything. Um, and then I went to a school that was pretty much like 50% African American, 50% Middle Eastern, another tiny little sliver of white people, which I fell into. And um, I think that some of the words, the way I pronounced them, or like the way that I spoke, like as I came into predominantly white high school in like Grand Valley, I kind of like changed the way that I did things. And I was wondering, with your experience and kind of going back and forth between cultures a lot, like in your youth, did you, did you feel now or then like you were like losing yourself or your culture, or did you just feel like you were kind of just adapting and it was you know fine and helpful for the future? Yeah, without a doubt, I, I was trying to adapt. I was trying to be like the, the biggest voices in the room, right? Because I saw them as having the, the power, the authority, the popularity, whatever you want to call it. And so absolutely, I, I think I sort of started to lose myself. And that's why all these changes actually helped me. You know, when I was sort of starting to lose my Mexican side, I would move back to Mexico. Then I started losing the Mexican side and move back to the U.S. And um, I really only think it's been like the last maybe four or five years that I've been a partner at my firm that I feel like, you know what, I can start being myself. You know, my kids, my older teenager is, uh, he's 13, uh, he's gay, and so he's got a very strong fashion sense and mocks me all the time and says that I dress like a 60-year-old white dude. And he's like, Dad, you're Mexican, man. Like, you should dress like that. And I'm like, I don't know how else to dress, right? Like, I've spent my entire, you know, like, legal career here in West Michigan trying to fit in with the powers, right? And it really hasn't been until now where I've felt like I can start really being myself. Um, and that's really unfortunate, right? Because I'm not, I'm not getting any younger. And so I feel like I've spent the better part of my life trying to be somebody else. Um, and, and that, you know, that, that shouldn't be the case, right? So you know, my wife and I, we tell our kids, like, you be you, man, right? We'll deal with the haters, we'll deal with the discrimination, we'll deal with the bigotry. You know, my, my gay son, yeah, you, you go and you be gay, man. And like, whatever that looks to you, we'll support you, we'll love you, and we'll defend you from inevitably the bullying, the, the teasing, the all that which happens, right? And is deeply hurtful. Mm -hmm. um, but rather than telling, no, you know what, you should really tone it down a little bit. We're like, no, man. 
Ramp it up. Do you do you, right? So, so the question was, you know, do we think that DEI at some point would just sort of become part of our, of our the fabric of our society, of who we are, not something we have to constantly talk about? I think, I'd like to think it will, but only once we change the narrative around it. So I'm a board member at the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and we're doing great as an organization. We've raised a lot of money over the last few years. Grand Valley is a partner of ours. Um, but I'm always pushing our leadership to sell the services that we offer as a chamber, as a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, through the lens of economic development, right? Stop selling it as DEI work. Stop, well, we're not in a position to stop taking money, but you know, a lot of the money that comes our way is from diversity budgets that organizations have. And that's all well and good because diversity is like a, the popular topic right now, but tomorrow it's gonna be clean energy, right? And move, people will move on from diversity and then where are we left in this discussion? You've got to change the narrative, right? Well, we talked about the, the actual impact of having a, a, not having a diverse or inclusive workplace. That costs real money, right? Uh, that keeps me employed because companies have to defend this stuff. And so the moment you switch it from, no, this isn't just a nice fuzzy feeling where people feel a sense of belonging, but no, this is good for you. This is good for our country, right? That's when I think we'll stop talking about DEI and it'll just be like, no, what are we doing to be inclusive because this is what we need to do to succeed. It's not just building a better product, it's making sure that our employees are being innovative when they build a better product. It's that our customer base sees themselves reflected in our employee base, right? It really sort of all ties together and, and I hate to say it, but once you sort of tie it back to money, to, to the economy, that's when you start to realize, yeah, you know what, this actually is it's kind of a serious topic. And it goes beyond just diversity, equity, and inclusion. Whole questions from our Zoom audience. Um, so one person says you mentioned uh, the importance of understanding and acknowledging implicit bias. The state of Michigan agrees with you, mandating licensed healthcare workers to receive implicit bias training. And while this person was in a training, they mentioned meritocracy. Are you able to comment on your experiences with people arguing that their achievements in life are due to their work ethic and not at all related to their privilege? How do you respond to people who think this way? Yeah, and, th and that's a great question, right? And I think the, the topic of privilege comes up a lot more now. I think we're starting to sort of wrap our head around it. One of the, the biggest fights that I've ever had with my wife was before we got married. She is, uh, she's from West Michigan, from Sparta. Why? But she grew up without many resources, right, and from a broken home. And at some point early on when we were dating in early 2000s, uh, the topic of white privilege came up. And she was just like, how is it that, that, you know, she's like, you had a way better life than I have, and you're Mexican, man. Like, I don't have any privilege. You know, I grew up like kind of poor, and my parents separated, and so what, what's my privilege, right? And she had all the right to push back like that. And I was deeply offended because like, what? How can you possibly not see it, right? And uh, not our best moments for either of us. But it goes beyond just like, oh, you grew up with money because you're white. That's not what we're talking about with privilege. 
It's that the moment you walk into a room, people visually size you up and say, ah, that person's opinion values more than that person's opinion, right? Or as my parents like to say, you know, they speak with very heavy accents, right? They're Mexican. They like to say, I speak with an accent. I don't think with an accent, right? Just because I can't really communicate what I'm saying because I, I lack sort of the nomenclature, the vocabulary to say it, doesn't mean that you should dismiss my opinion, right? Maybe, maybe ask another question to tease it out of me, right? And so when we talk about privilege, I think that that's what we really need to sort of understand our unconscious biases. We're, we're really sized up from where you live, how you look, all these things, and they really sort of affect how people treat you. And you've got to recognize that, right? And if you don't recognize that, we're, we're, if we don't start sort of like seeing it with ourselves, we're not really going to see it in other people. Another Zoom question. Um, this individual asks, when you, you mentioned adapting to the ways of Cubans and West Michiganders when you were assimilated into different cultures. Did you ever feel resentful or did you feel like it was something that you needed to do to be successful? Both, right? I feel like I absolutely needed to do it and I was also deeply resentful. Because I'm like, how come I can't be myself, right? How come I can't really fully express who I am? Um, and this is exactly sort of like what I need to do to be successful and whatever my mind thought being successful was, right? And so you do end up being resentful about those around you, even though they don't even realize that they're doing anything. They might not be doing anything. But you're like, man, why do I need to be like you? Why do I need to act like you to be successful? And that's why I, I think it's, it's terribly damaging, right? It does a lot for, for self-esteem, for people... To, to really sort of feel a sense of belonging. Um, to the extent that you can, guys, especially the, the younger folks, avoid it. Be you, embrace it. You're, you're not gonna enjoy, you're gonna find yourself being in your 40s, 50s and realizing you don't even know who you are, right? And you might be successful by whatever society thinks success means, uh, but you won't be happy. And, and that's not real success. There was a hand over here. And that's a, that's a really valid question with some like very practical, um, very real world examples, right? What if you can't remove the fence? What if some people don't want the fence and just want the boxes, right? I'll give you a perfect example at an organization that I, um, I serve on the board of. They had thought about offering um, students freshly out of college uh, that were coming in as new employees a monthly stipend to help pay off their student loans. Wow, right, like super like forward thinking, progressive. And I kid you not, half the board pushed back and said, well, what about those that don't have student loans? That, what are we doing for them? I'm like, well, they're, they're kind of already winning at life, man. I don't know if we need to like do much for them. Um, but we got, and, and it didn't pass because our board was, was deadlocked on this issue and we weren't able to offer 
a stipend, and it wasn't even a huge stipend, but you know, 100, 150 bucks a month to sort of help our, our you know, recruiting efforts to say, hey, come over here, we'll help you pay off your student loans because we know that that's often sort of a, a block to getting into the nonprofit world, right? And so, so your question is exactly right. Like some people don't want to remove the fence. And, and you're gonna have to deal with that. I, I put up that slide very aspirationally, let's tear down the fences, right? But that's not gonna happen tomorrow and you are gonna get pushback, right? And so you, you just have to deal with it. And sometimes it's gonna be boxes, sometimes it's gonna be fences, sometimes it's both, right? Like if you're really short and, but. So yeah, yeah I, I, think you're, I think you're exactly right, yeah. I think we have time for one final question. So it does seem like we often, you know, so as a university, we are dealing with uh, trying to be equitable to incoming students and to make up for the inequities that have existed in their lives mm -hmm. since ch childbirth, really. And it seems like the, the answer is always to go back and back and back. And uh, when people complain, for example, about uh, preferred admissions for some students, I want to give a photograph of kindergarten classrooms around the state of Michigan or around the country and saying, well, are these equal? Are these kindergarten classrooms equal? Are these schools equal? So uh, it, ultimately, are we talking about a big, deep, systemic change in the United States of America in terms of the way we uh, create schools, create funding for different, mm -hmm. even the economic system itself? I mean, does, does this not inevitably go there? Without a doubt, right? In, in if anything, it's gonna go there because the US Census tells us it's gonna go there, right? Very soon, Caucasians are gonna become a minority in this country. And so that's gonna change the way things are done, right? Your policymakers are gonna look really different, right? The people you're sending to Congress, the people that are in leadership positions, your governors, right? Your president, everyone is gonna look different and all of a sudden their priorities are gonna change, right? Because they're coming out of these kindergarten classrooms that were much more different than they were for you or I, right? And so without a doubt, that, that's gonna change. Now, I don't wanna get too political, but we all know right now affirmative action is up in front of the Supreme Court, right? This is the kind of stuff that I sort of geek out about because it's, it's my, my industry. Um, I can tell you one of the most, I was telling you earlier how one of my classmates or one of my friends in college made one of the most like deeply hurtful comments to me, several of them did, but one of them, the day that I got accepted into law school, um, I got accepted to Michigan, and I came over to, to their house. A bunch of my friends lived in a house, and I went over there, and I was like super excited to share with them that I got accepted to Michigan. And this good friend of mine turned around, and the first thing he tells me is, oh, you know, affirmative action must be nice. And I was like, whoa. Uh, he didn't know what my LSAT score was. He didn't know what my GPA was coming out of college. He had no idea whether I had earned that right to be in that classroom at Michigan or whether it was just purely because of my skin color, right? And I think we all know that it, it's much more than that, right? Any institution that has any sort of program like that isn't just gonna accept you because of your skin color. That's not the diversity that they want, right? But should it be a factor when you're trying to create a diverse classroom? I think it should. We, we can disagree, but that's, that's the kind of sort of narrow-mindedness, right, that, that I think is, is an issue. So I think that that is going to change. It is inevitably going to change uh, because the population is going to change. And so I think a lot of this stuff might end up just tapering off when in 20, 25 years, we look around this room and it looks very different.
thank you everyone. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to an episode of The Rewind, a podcast series by the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies. The audio for this episode was captured by Mark Washburn of Gyrus Media. This episode was produced and sound engineered by Maddie Miller. The Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University is inspired by Ralph Howenstein's life of leadership and service and is dedicated to raising a community of ethical, effective leaders for the 21st century. For more information on our center, the Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy, or the Common Ground Initiative, visit our website at www.gvsu.edu. To keep up with our current events and recurring initiatives, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, all of which can be found linked below. If you liked this episode, consider giving us a review and rating so we can be found by other podcast listeners. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.